This is not your century. This is Not Your Century, where we celebrate the news and the news media of centuries gone by. I'm King Kaufman. July 4th, 2019. Wait, that's today. All right, this isn't going to be the usual episode of Not Your Century. What we're doing today is the best of Not Your Century, True Crime Edition. I've taken some of my favorite true crime episodes of Not Your Century and strung them together to give you something longer to listen to. I know you're probably driving to the beach or you're at the beach your cousin's barbecue or something, and you need something to listen to because you don't want to talk to your cousin or that one uncle, you know the one I mean. So I hear true crime is big in podcasting, and these are some of my favorite stories that I've come across in the first few months of Not Your Century. We're going to do the same thing tomorrow, the best of Not Your Century, a longer episode. The theme tomorrow will be no theme. We're not going to have a theme tomorrow. It's just some of my favorite stories. Before we get to that, I want to tell you about a live edition of this podcast that I'm going to be doing at the Beta Brand Podcast Theater on Valencia Street in San Francisco on August 22nd. That's right. It's going to be Not Your Century Live. It's going to be a free show, but you need a ticket to get in. Go to eventbrite.com and search for Not Your Century, or you can find a direct link in my Twitter bio. I'm at King underscore Kaufman. So August 22nd, a live show at the Beta Brand Podcast Theater. I'm really excited about that, and I hope you'll come see me. We'll play games. We'll do all kinds of fun stuff. I actually have no idea what we're going to do yet. That's something I'm going to be thinking about over the next few weeks. All right, so let's get to our true crime episodes. A little bit of housekeeping. You know that opening that you just listened to at the beginning of every episode of Not Your Century, and then there's also the rigmarole at the end about subscribing and all that. You're not going to have to listen to that in between each of those episodes. I cut those out. So it's just the episodes themselves, but I will jump in and kind of introduce each episode and I won't be as long winded as this, I promise. So we're going to take them chronologically. We're going to start in 1913 with the Bunko scandal in the San Francisco Police Department. Crooked cops. What could be more true crime than that? This is podcast gold, people. May 1st, 1913. The San Francisco Police Bunko Scandal is coming to a head. Bunko's an old school word that doesn't get used enough anymore. It refers to grift, con artists, those scam emails you get. That's Bunko. There was an Italian Bunko ring operating in North Beach. When the ringleader, Mike Gallo, got arrested, he started talking about the cops he was paying for protection. Also talking, merchants and residents of North Beach who had complained about the Bunko Ring to the police and hadn't gotten much help. It was starting to become clear why not. In separate inquiries by a grand jury and the police commission, Sebastian Ravani talked about the cops who frequented his saloon, the Jupiter Cafe at 544 Broadway. That's about where the Beat Museum is now. He said he used to serve Detectives John Sullivan, J.L. Droulette, W.F. McHugh, and Frank Isola, and he served them while they were in the company of Bunko men, and the conversations he heard made it clear the detectives knew the crooks. Also, while the cops were visiting the resort, that's what the Chronicle called the bar, a resort, there was gambling happening right out in the open. The sound of rattling chips and the cry of the croupier were unmistakable and constant. I'm shocked, shocked to find that gambling is going on in here. 
You're winning, sir. Oh, thank you very much. Cesar Ranchi also testified. He owned the resort at 544 Broadway at a different time. He told similar stories and said that strangers would often leave fat envelopes on his cash register. The detectives would then ask for the envelopes. Ranchi said, you're not going to believe this. He said he was led to believe the envelopes contained money. The police, for their part, laughed at the idea that they'd accepted bribes. All eight men who stood accused expressed confidence that they would be cleared. They were pretty much whistling past the graveyard. The charges were ridiculously specific. Each one came complete with a date, a time, and an amount of money. The district attorney, Charles Fickert, said he was surprised that the grand jury and the police commission were determined to wrap up their investigation in the next day or so. I'm ready and anxious to go to the bat with this affair and even further, he said. I have located witnesses whom I expect to testify to far more than has been revealed by the inquiry as far as it has gone. Fickert may have been a little jealous. He made sure to point out that he was the one who began the investigation into the Bunko Ring and the allegations that the police were on the take. The officers were all suspended from the force, and some of them ended up doing some time in county jail. One of the detectives, Frank Isola, was sentenced in June to five years in Folsom Prison. It's terrible to see the officers sworn to protect the city succumb to the temptations of the criminal underworld, and it's almost as bad that nobody says bunko anymore. One of the things I love about doing this show is all the things I learned. Like for this next episode, I learned that during Prohibition, it was illegal to buy or sell alcohol. It was illegal to make it. It was illegal to transport it. I knew all that. But what I didn't know is it was not illegal to own it, to possess it, or to drink it. So it was a little different than the drug laws today. What that means is that whatever liquor you had on hand when prohibition took effect, it was okay to keep it and it was okay to drink it. And so rich people stockpiled liquor before prohibition kicked in. And what that meant was that once prohibition was in effect, if you weren't a rich people and you didn't have a storehouse of booze, there were three ways to get it. You could make some, you could buy some off of somebody who had made some or imported some illegally or you could steal it from a rich person. All three of those things were illegal. You might go to jail for any of them, but only one didn't cost you any money. That was stealing it from the rich person. So if you were thirsty and not rich, you might want to look to your friendly neighborhood rich person who probably had a big pile of booze in the basement. And a lot of those people had servants, chauffeurs, maids, nannies, cooks. They were probably poor people, and they knew where the liquor was. So you have motive, you have opportunity, and you have our next story, which comes out of Menlo Park in 1922. The big story in the Chronicle on March 4th, 1922, there was a $25,000 liquor robbery in Menlo Park. That's about $375,000 today. A hundred cases of rare whiskey and other alcoholic drinks. This is three years into Prohibition. It was all at the Frederick McNear Mansion in Menlo Park, which is still there. It's at 60 Parkwood Drive. Please don't disturb the residents. The residents at the time were the Hart family. Mr. McNear was in Cairo, in case you're wondering. 
Julian Hart was the man of the house, and he says that the chauffeur, George Gorsol, known as Tony to his friends, well, Tony was one of the bandit crew, there was some circumstantial evidence. They found $7,000 worth of hooch at Tony's house. Meanwhile, there was a hero to this story, or in the parlance of 1922, a heroine, and her picture was on the front page. Mary Conway, pretty Stanford graduate and well-known as an aviatrix. This is the Chronicle's description of her. She was the caretaker for the Hart children, and all anybody could talk about after the robbery was how she'd been so brave and kept her cool. It was nothing, she declared modestly. I'm extremely nervous over the excitement created now that it's all over. But at the time it happened, I made up my mind to keep my wits about me. And she really did, too. The robbers wanted to lock her in the cellar, but she pleaded with their leader, who she described as a well-bred sort of chap. She says he courteously asked her to keep quiet, and she agreed. The robbers were partaking in the booze as they were stealing it, and in Mary's words, they got merrier. They kept proposing toasts to Mr. Hart, who they called a good scout, and they invited Mary to drink along with them, and she agreed. But she'd wait till they were distracted and dump out her glass like they do in the old movies. I pretended that I had entered into the spirit of the orgy, she said, and even told the fortune of the leader. Why was there so much booze in the McNear house three years into Prohibition? The law prohibited the manufacture of alcohol. It prohibited the sale of alcohol. But you could drink it, and you could own it. So in the months leading up to the passage of the 18th Amendment in 1919, rich people stockpiled as much booze as they could. And that made them vulnerable to merry bands of robbers. After that episode ran, a lot of people told me that they thought that our heroine, the pretty aviatrix, Mary, was in on the deal with the robbers. That hadn't even occurred to me. What do you think? Anyway, another thing I learned from this episode was the word aviatrix. They really liked that word in newspapers back in the day, and they were still using it a decade and a half later when they talked about Amelia Earhart. We're going to jump ahead not quite that far to 1935. You know, the big gangsters of Prohibition and the Depression, John Dillinger, Al Capone, Bonnie and Clyde, that crowd, they didn't get out to California that much, but one of them did. Babyface Nelson. He was a bank robber and killer, and San Francisco was a regular stop for him when he was on the lam. By the time our story takes place in 1935, he was already dead. He'd been killed in a shootout with the FBI in 34. Now some of his accomplices are on trial for harboring a fugitive. And one of them, a guy named Fatso, is about to sing in court. And oh man, when he walks into the courtroom, the dirty looks he gets. The famous gangsters of the 1930s didn't spend a lot of time in the Bay Area, but one of the most famous of them did make a habit of coming here. And on March 26, 1935, a big trial was being held in a federal courtroom in San Francisco. Nine people stood accused of harboring a fugitive named Lester Gillis, alias George Nelson. It apparently wasn't a good idea to say it to his face, but America knew this bank robber and killer as Babyface Nelson. He was a Midwesterner from Chicago, and he was part of a gang with John Dillinger. 
On several occasions between 1930 and 34, he'd come to San Francisco hiding out around the Bay Area and in Reno. After Dillinger was killed, the FBI declared Nelson public enemy number one. He ran to San Francisco. Babyface Nelson was killed in a wild shootout with FBI agents in Barrington, Illinois on November 27, 1934. And now in 1935, eight men and a woman were on trial for helping him on one of his western trips. Security was heavy and heavily armed. Witnesses were whisked in and out of court, and the star witness looked visibly nervous as the defendants shot withering looks at him. That star witness was a Mr. Joseph Ray Negri, Fatso Negri, a San Francisco native. A longtime associate of Babyface Nelson, John Dillinger, and Pretty Boy Floyd, all now dead, he'd turned on his living former associates in exchange for a more lenient sentence for the crimes he'd pleaded guilty to. He told of meeting Dillinger and other famous gangsters at a hideout in Wisconsin and of accompanying Nelson to Reno, where Nelson bought a couple of bulletproof vests, but not before testing them out by hanging them up on a wall and shooting at him. Such a vest may have saved Babyface's life when a guard shot him in the chest during a bank robbery. The nine defendants were all found guilty of harboring a fugitive. Fatso Negri got probation. Authorities were worried he'd be hunted down and killed for breaking the criminal code of silence, and he did disappear for a short time later in 1935, but he turned up alive, and it's not known whatever happened to him. Some of the music in this episode was by Pedro Esparza. He's at youtube.com slash musicbypedro. All right, I'm going to stretch the theme a little bit this next one. It's not really about crime. It's about the fear of crime and what might lead to it. You know what I'm talking about. I'm talking about gumball machines. I want you to pay attention to the sound effects in this episode. I created them. Gumball machines are harder to find now than they were in 1956, but we have a mall about a block from the Chronicle office, and there's a whole bank of candy machines, so I use those to approximate the sound of gumball machines. Also, the sound of paper being thrown into the trash. I'm very proud of my Foley work in this episode. Gum machines. Devil's spawn. That was the headline in the San Francisco Chronicle on March 7, 1956, and that was the subject of a letter sent by Eldon C. Middleton of 1193 King Street, Redwood City, to the San Mateo County Board of Supervisors. Let us get to the evil root of the problem, Mr. Middleton wrote. Let us examine the penny gum machine. In these innocent-looking but demoralizing devices lie the very foundations of wickedness which are threatening to engulf us all. How many innocent children have you seen playing these syndicate-operated sin bowls with penny after penny in an effort to get them to pay off with a ball of gum of the desired color? How often have you heard the plaintive and the heart-rending wails of these wayward waifs crying out in the wilderness as they clutch a variety of green, yellow, and red balls in their grimy hands when all they really wanted was a black one? Here, gentlemen, is the real source of all of society's ills. The foundation has been laid for bigger and more exciting play for pinball machines, slot machines, canasta, and even Scrabble. Junior is on his way to a life of corruption, and from this road there is no turning back. The decadent die 
has been cast. Drive the syndicate and its evil devices from our midst, Eldon C. Middleton wrote. Remove from office those officials whose insatiable thirst for added income in the forms of payoffs from these machines allow this school of sin to flourish. Strike while the iron is hot. Remove the gum machines from our midst. The Chronicle story, which consisted almost entirely of Eldon C. Middleton's letter and does not seem to have been some kind of parody, concluded with one simple sentence. Middleton's letter was read and filed for reference. Also in the Chronicle on March 7, 1956, the San Mateo County Sheriff Earl Whitmore and the chiefs of police of nine San Mateo communities met and decided that pinball machines should not be banned. I hope nobody tells Mr. Middleton. Sheriff Whitmore said the group agreed that pinball machines did not constitute a police problem, they did not contribute to crime, they were not operated by a crime syndicate, and in the last four years, they had received exactly one complaint about pinball games. He didn't say who that one report was from, but if those syndicate guys really were around, I'd put a little money down on Eldon C. Middleton of 1193 King Street, Redwood City. After that episode, I got an email from Jason Pfeiffer. He's the host of a podcast called Pessimist Archive, which is about the history of people being afraid of innovation. He told me that that letter writer in 1956 wasn't some weirdo. A lot of people thought gum machines and pinball machines and like, I don't know, pachinko. Is that a thing? P what is pachinko? Anyway, that stuff led to gambling and crime and they were outlawed a lot of places. In fact, in Oakland, pinball machines were illegal until 2014. I lived in Oakland for several years during the period when pinball machines were illegal. I had no idea. Did you know that? Anyway, Jason invited me to be the voice of some newspaper editorials in a Pessimist Archive episode about the waltz, which, of course, when it was new in the 1800s, people thought it was going to corrupt the morals of the youth and all that stuff. So anyway, I got to impersonate a Blue Nose editorial writer on the Pessimist Archive, and I had Jason impersonate Teddy Roosevelt on Not Your Century in an episode about T.R. beefing with the Pope, you know, as one does. Okay, this is the last one. And once again, I'm stretching the true crime theme a little bit. San Francisco city officials wanted to battle all the crime that was accompanying the topless craze in North Beach in the mid-1960s. The cops were like, there's no crime. The people who go to North Beach to watch women dance with no tops on are remarkably well-behaved. And the mayor and the supervisors were just, they just weren't going to take that one lying down. So let's go, 1965. Mayor John F. Shelley has surrendered. He has given in to the flesh pots of the Barbary Coast, succumbed to the carnal pleasures of North Beach. May 8th, 1965. John F. Shelley was a straight-laced union official turned politician who served for 15 years in Congress before being elected mayor. He was from a large, working-class Irish Catholic family in the Mission District. And now? Well, no, he wasn't giving in to the temptations of the flesh himself. He was surrendering in the fight against topless entertainment in North Beach. 
Mayor Shelley wanted everybody to know that he wasn't against fun. He'd said that. I want it clearly understood that this administration is not against fun in San Francisco. Fun is part of our city's heritage. But he thought this new phenomenon of topless dancers like Carol Dota at the Condor Club was a bit much. That bare breasts and suggestive movements added up to obscenity. It's not like this was just John F. Shelley's point of view. He was getting pressure from business, chamber of commerce types, religious and civic organizations, and the San Francisco Examiner, owned then by the Hearst Corporation, which now owns the Chronicle. The objections weren't just on moral grounds, but practical ones. Topless joints attracted the dregs of society, criminals and perverts, and that led to a rise in crime. You know who disagreed with that? The cops. When the Board of Supervisors was considering a resolution to condemn toplessness on account of all the crime it attracted, the captain of the central station told them they were on the wrong track. He said that considering the number of people who frequented North Beach, the area had a surprisingly low crime rate. It was already April at the time, and there hadn't been a single purse snatching reported in North Beach in 1965. The captain said, I don't know where all the muggers and molesters of women are, but they aren't in North Beach. But it wasn't his call, so the police began raiding the topless joints and arresting people. Carol Dota was pulled off of her famous piano, the one that was on the hydraulic lift, and she was taken off to jail. And now the cases of the Condor Club and another North Beach joint, the Off-Broadway, had worked their way quickly through municipal court, and the judges had told the juries not to convict. Judge Leland Lazarus directed a not-guilty verdict in the Condor case because of uncontradicted defense testimony that shapely Carol Doda's topless dancing did not violate community standards of decency. So Mayor Shelley was giving in. The topless joints were here to stay. A resigned mayor told reporters, The police thought this was a violation of the law. The court said no. So there was not a violation of the law. Well... Actually, the police had also said no, but a mayor's got powerful constituents to think about. The Condor and the Off-Broadway swung back into business with abandon. They weren't the only topless joints that had been raided in April, and the others were going to play it a little more cautiously while their cases were still pending. But, as the mayor acknowledged, the writing was on the wall. The Chronicle listed the spots, and helpfully, their addresses, like the Moulin Rouge at 412 Broadway and the Chi-Chi Club at 440. There was also Tipsy's, The Cellar, Big Al's, Club Hangover, The Domino Club, Chez Paris, and Relax with Yvonne, which was way out on Mission Street in Bernal Heights. Those places all got back into business, some of them for a long time. Carol Dota danced until 1986, and she was a local celebrity until she died at the age of 78 in 2015. The Condor Club has gone through various iterations, but it's still there, complete with a historical marker honoring it as the birthplace of topless entertainment. The Off-Broadway lasted for years as a music club. Big Al's still has its iconic sign of the gangster with the machine gun, but it's a cigar store now, which the city ought to look into. You know what kind of people smoke cigars? 
Some information in this episode came from a book that I really like. It's called This Date in San Francisco by John C. Ralston. And that's the special true crime edition of Not Your Century. Thanks for joining me. And I'll see you tomorrow with another very special best of Not Your Century episode. The theme will be no theme. And don't forget, August 22nd, a live version of Not Your Century at the Beta Brand Podcast Theater on Valencia Street. Ticket information, they're free, but you do need a ticket to get in. You can get it at eventbrite.com. Search for Not Your Century, or you can just go to the direct link in my Twitter bio at King underscore Kaufman. And I'm sure I'm going to be tweeting a lot about it between now and August 22nd. All right, more best of Not Your Century tomorrow. Until then, we now return you to your century.